0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org please enjoy the podcast. Father, I'm so grateful that we have use of this technology, that even though we're all isolated in our own homes, that we can still uh, see each other's faces and hear each other's voices, that we can still spend time in your word together. And Father, even though we're Uh, able to make use of the internet. God, we are even more grateful for your Holy Spirit, which binds us and unites us all together in Christ. And I pray that for our time now, as we open your word, as we spend time studying together, God, that you would use this time to build us up, to fortify and strengthen us in our faith, to help us be able to navigate these days that we live in in such a way that we would reflect you to those that we are able to interact with, whether that is by means of telephone, by internet, or even for some of us as we're still going into our workplaces and engaging with others in in real life. Uh, Lord, I pray that in all that we think and say and do, that we would be bringing glory to you, that we would be reflecting your goodness, your grace into the lives of those that we get to uh, interact with. And so use your word this morning to build us up in this most holy faith. Bring glory to your name through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, sent an email uh, yesterday and I had asked everybody to get a marker and some scrap paper. So if you haven't done that, if you could do that, we're going to we're going to share some notes. I figured that would be easier than than trying to uh respond with audio because too much audio in Zoom starts to just cut others out. So a marker I think would show up best on a piece of paper, so a marker and then uh, some scratch paper that you can write some things on and hold them up to your camera so that others can see. We're going we're gonna to play around with this a little bit. It may be a total flop and failure, but uh, this is my first time teaching to a computer screen and to a camera. All right, so Mark chapter 13, uh, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 13 this morning. And I want to begin just by reading this passage. So Mark chapter 13 and beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is God's word. All right, trusting that we have some markers and some paper available. Uh, We've been maybe hearing in the news or reading in media and uh, maybe even talking about in our own homes recently, what is essential? Uh, What is essential? What are those services that are still being provided in our community that are considered to be essential? We've probably given some, some personal consideration to those things that are essential. And then we're also impacted by our society's definition of what they consider to be essential. Uh, As of Friday, with uh, the Hood River County now, trails are closed, completely closed. So uh, I can't go on trails and I can't get a haircut, Uh, but my wife and I were still able to get some takeout on Thursday night for our date night. So uh, takeout essential, is, is one of those essential services, which I'm, I'm glad for because uh, in our society's estimation at least, because it allowed us to have a date night on, on Thursday night, even if we did just eat it in our car. Um, anybody else impacted by some of these things that are maybe strangely considered essential or non-essential? And here's where I was hoping that maybe the uh, paper and the marker would come into play if you could maybe write down what some things are that you consider to be essential and hold those up to the camera so that others can see as well. I see that uh, Caleb uh, Rice family, they're gonna try to answer here with chat. So that works as well. I can see Craig and Karen have something, but it's maybe a little closer to the camera, Caleb. Electricity. All right, Heather Dehart. Electricity, water, and energy. Yep, those things are essential. Jason Dehart family, a little closer. Does it say coffee? Yes, yes, coffee. Many coffee stores have closed, sadly. Do I see another one coming from the from the stays acts? See some paper being floated. Phones, Riker wrote down phones, things that we consider to be essential. It's, it's a great tool for being able to stay in contact with each other. Love of family, very true. Something that we can't uh, shouldn't be doing without. Love of family is essential. Great. So, as we think about those things that are essential, it should cause us to really consider how we would prepare for hardship. So, right now, um, we're, we're in the, in the midst of, of a hardship that is, is unique, I would say. Um, I see that Caleb uh, Micah Rice said, church and, and contact with others being essential. Yeah, God has has made us as social creatures, that we are made in his image, we are made for relationship, and so contact with others, and church, where we can gather together with others in worship of God, those are certainly essential as well. So how do we prepare for hardship? And then what's essential for us in weathering a season of hardship? Jesus, in this account, in Mark chapter 13, is preparing his disciples for a season of difficulty, a season of of great hardship. He knew it was coming, and he's telling them beforehand, and he wants them to be prepared. And I think that as, as we study through this passage, we might actually be a little bit surprised about what he answers. Surprised, maybe, because of some of the things that he doesn't include in his answer. Uh, Those things that he looks at as essential, he's looking at attitudes, he's looking at heart, he's looking at the preparations that are made uh, in the individual, preparing for difficult times. And so we read in verse 1, Jesus telling his disciples about what was to come. As he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, the temple in Jerusalem during this time really was something that was a wonderful sight to behold. Uh, Herod's temple. So, Originally, there was Solomon's temple, and that was destroyed, and then the temple was rebuilt. And now Herod had undertaken this this reconstruction, this rebuilding of the temple. And with his reconstruction of the temple, this was one of those construction projects that was spare no expense. So top of the line for everything. We want the biggest. We want the best. Money is no object. And Herod, in doing this, wasn't building the greatest temple so that he could give glory to God. No, he was building this grand temple, really, for his own glory and to show the power of the Romans and to show some kindness toward the Jews and hopefully win their favor. But the temple, uh, a rabbi had said that the temple, he who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. So if you haven't seen the temple, you have not seen a beautiful building, a glorious building. One commentator wrote that the temple complex in Jerusalem was probably the most awesome building in the ancient world. Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, and he Uh, recorded that some of the stones for the temple were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet deep. Those are huge, huge stones that they would have moved into place for the temple. He even wrote about the temple that the outward face of the temple In its front wanted or lacked nothing that was likely to surprise either men's mind or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays." But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, that is covered with gold, they were exceedingly white. John chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that at that point the temple had been under construction for 46 years. And it would be around 30 more years before Herod was complete with this rebuilding of the temple. So those of you that are remodeling, uh, you are reorganizing things in your home, restructuring, uh, you can take heart that this is not an 80-year project. And that's really what it was for the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the temple. It was finished in uh, around 64 AD. And then it was destroyed in 70 A.D. So as they're leaving the temple, this disciple makes the comment about what wonderful buildings, what wonderful stones. These things were all hugely impressive. And this disciple, think about this, this wouldn't have been his first time seeing the temple. And even one that had spent time on the Temple Mount, had spent time around the Temple, had seen the Temple as a devout Jew, even making yearly pilgrimages to the Temple, he was still amazed, still filled with wonder at the sight of the Temple. That should give you some idea, some impression of just how impressive this building was And so how does Jesus respond to the disciples' comment? Verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus recognized, yes, these are great buildings. And it was more than than just uh, their appearance, these were really great buildings in a number of ways. They were impressive. They were great in size, yes. They were great in splendor. That's, they were beautiful. They were, they were white stones that were covered with plates of gold. But they were also great in importance, great in significance to the daily lives of the Jewish people. So much of their life would have revolved around the temple, either decisions or actions that were taken in the temple and then dispersed out through the rest of the nation of Israel. It was the center of Jewish life, religious life, economic, social, political life. Really, all of that took place in and around the temple. So this would be maybe similar to us in America thinking about the legislative and executive and judicial branches of our government, and how if all of those were contained in one space, in one building, if there was one place that symbolized and signified all of that, that's what it was, the temple for the Jews. Jesus says, yes, these great buildings. But there's a day coming that they'll all be tumbling down. This would have been just devastating news to the Jews, to any Jew hearing this. This is something that the Jews brought up against Jesus in his trial, that he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. This is something that they they latched on to. This was important to them. Jesus says all these buildings are coming down, There will not be here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now maybe you remember, if you're old enough, the day that the Twin Towers in New York City came crashing down. If you're old enough, I would say you probably remember where you were. You probably remember who you were with. You probably remember what you were doing. I remember for me that day, uh, building a house in Bend, and I was there with my coworker Bob, and it seemed like the day just went into slow motion, almost like the world had stopped that day. Such devastation, and almost 18 years ago now, around 18 years ago that that took place, but we can still remember so vividly when those towers fell and the events of that day. And the events of that day still impact our life even now. And to be honest, the Twin Towers, I hadn't really thought about them at all before 9-11-2001. Think about if the buildings that fell were the center of our nation, the center of our life. And that's what the temple was for the Jews, the center and seat of Jewish life. So you have to imagine for this disciple that asked the question, this was huge news, something that they wanted more clarification on, something that they wanted to ask Jesus more about. And so we read in verses 3 and 4 this inquiry. Verse 3, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, they had left the temple, they had gone down through the Kidron Valley, and then back over, across, and up the Mount of Olives. And from that vantage point, they would be looking across the valley, and they would be able to see the Temple Mount, there with the temple as the centerpiece. Now, maybe you've seen more contemporary pictures of Jerusalem, and you see the big gold dome. That's on the Temple Mount. That's not the temple. No, that is the Dome of the Rock Mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that has been built on those grounds now. But that is around the area that the temple would have stood. And so many of those pictures even that we see now, looking at the Temple Mount, looking at Jerusalem, seeing the Dome of the Rock Mosque, many of those are even taken from the Mount of Olives. It gives you a good, clear view, looking across the Kidron Valley, and to the Temple Mount. And so there they are sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they have this vantage point looking across and seeing the Temple, and seeing the Temple Mount, and all of the construction and the buildings and the great stones and the huge plates of gold covering the Temple. And these four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, come to Jesus and ask him, When? When is this going to take place? And then what? What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Now, verse 4 is important for us to grab hold of and understand. If we don't understand verse 4, then the rest of this chapter, chapter 13, is going to get very confusing. I am persuaded that verse 4 is two questions referring to one thing. Two questions, but both referring to one thing. Let's look at this. Verse 4 Tell us, question number one When will these things be? These things, the Greek is tauta. And I want you to latch on to that because as we continue to move through Mark 13 in the coming weeks, these things, Greek tauta, is going to come up again, and that's going to help us be able to put things in the proper place so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about. So question number one, when will these things be? And then the second question, question number two, what... Will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? What will be the sign when all these things, there's that Greek tauta again, when all these things, tauta, are about to be accomplished? So, two questions, but both referring to the same thing. These things, in fact, the Greek tauta, both of their questions are about these things. What Jesus just announced to them, that the temple was going to be destroyed, that not one stone was going to be left standing upon another. When is it going to happen? And then what is the sign that we could look for when it's going to be accomplished? Both referring to the destruction of the temple. Jesus's answer first and foremost is about the destruction of the temple in verses 5 through 23. So even extending beyond where we're studying this morning. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 13. Next week we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. And I believe that those first 23 verses are first and foremost speaking about The destruction of the temple. And then in verse 24 there's a switch where he then starts to talk about a further day. Now because verses 5 through 23 are primarily first and foremost about the destruction of the temple, that is that is their near fulfillment. So when you read Scripture, And there are prophetic words. There is something spoken that is prophecy. As Jesus is doing here, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. That's that's prophetic. That is foretelling. That is looking out and saying, this is going to happen sometime in the future. Oftentimes in prophetic language, And in prophetic passages, there is both a near fulfillment and then a more distant fulfillment. So verses 5 through 23, we have record of this near fulfillment. There will be a near fulfillment that is all related to the destruction of the temple, of the temple coming down. But then also... In prophecy, oftentimes, there is a, is a further fulfillment. We might say an eschatological fulfillment, something more near the end times, the end things, this eschatological fulfillment that certain events might be, might be realized, might be seen in the near future, but then also have a second and even more profound fulfillment around Christ's return. And I think we see some of that at play in the answers that Jesus gives. But I do believe that verses 5 through 23 have a near fulfillment, that all of those events that Jesus spoke about in verses 5 through 23 took place before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. All right, so... We've gotten into the weeds a little bit, we've we've drilled down, we've gotten even a little bit technical, but I want to pull back some at this point. I I want to just draw back a little bit and make some general observations about what we've seen so far. Prayerfully, this will be helpful, these observations that I want to make at this point. First, Jesus was preparing his disciples for hardship. He was preparing his disciples for hardship, the destruction of the temple. There would be great hardship very shortly, even as Jesus was betrayed, as Jesus was put on trial, as Jesus was crucified, as Jesus was buried. They were being prepared for hardship that would come very soon, but also there was hardship that was coming even as they got closer to that year 70 AD. As they got closer to 70 AD and and there was more tumult around and in the city of Jerusalem when the Romans were pressing down upon the Jews even more, eventually destroying the city and the temple. And Jesus is preparing them for hardship. I want you to understand this, church. This is important for us, that Jesus doesn't insulate his followers from trouble. He prepares them for it. He protects them in it. He preserves them through it. And as he preserves them through it and protects them during that time, he works powerfully through them in the midst of that trouble. And that's what Jesus is busy doing here. He's preparing them so that they could be used powerfully during that time. I would just turn you to the book of Acts and have you read those stories and look at those accounts of all the ways that the church, even in the midst of trial and trouble, the church was exploding. The gospel was being preached, and even when persecution came, I wouldn't even say in spite of persecution, but because of persecution, the church, the believers, spread throughout the known world, preaching the gospel. And it was because of the persecution that came. God is preparing his people. Jesus is preparing his followers here for hardship. And then second, a second just general drawback big picture look at what we've seen so far. What was the response of the disciples to this devastating news? This prophetic statement about the destruction of the temple. What did, what did the disciples do? They had questions. Those are good questions. We, we want to we know. I mean, this is going to be life-changing. Things will never be the same When these things take place, Jesus, that you're telling us about. So they had questions, and where did they bring their questions to? They drew near to Jesus, didn't they? The four of them came to Jesus privately, James, Peter, John, and Andrew, and they asked him. There are a thousand ways that we might react to difficult news, to devastating news, respond to trial. But I think learning a lesson from the disciples, it would serve us very well. Draw near to Jesus. When there's trial, when there's difficulty, when there's unknown, when there's the uncertainty, draw near to Jesus. He has the answers. Do you know, dear saint, that, that he loves you? Do you know that he purchased you with his own blood? Do you know that he brought you into his family? Adopted you, called you a son, a daughter of God most high? That you are an heir together with Christ? Do you know that Jesus is interceding for you? Do you know that he is preparing a place for you even now, a glorious place? Do you know that Jesus will never leave you, never forsake you? and that he will return for you and bring you into everlasting glory. The disciples, even when they learned of this uncertainty, for them, uncertainty, that was to come, they drew near to Jesus. That's what we need to do as well, church. In verses 5 through 13 now, Jesus begins his answer, his response to the two questions, two questions referring to one thing, he begins his response to the two questions by, of these disciples. Verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, as you think about this, Jesus responds to the questions of his disciples, but pay attention to what he answers. He doesn't give a specific answer to their first question. When will these things, Greek tauta, when will these things be? He doesn't give any specifics. Doesn't give them a year, a month, a date, a time. No. Instead, he says, this will happen, and that will take place, but the end is not yet. Oh, and, and wars and earthquakes and famines are coming But that's only the beginning of the birth pains. In verses 5 through 13, he's much less concerned with the timing and the sign, those two questions. And he's much more concerned with the standing and the faithful endurance of his disciples. He gives these five commands in verses 5 through 13 to his disciples. Five commands. This is what you need to do. And then he gives them one promise. And that's really what I what I want to spend our time together on this morning. The time that we have left are these commands, these imperatives. This is what you must do. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples in the midst of, of these questions, in the middle of this uncertainty that, that they had just come aware of become aware of. The first one is in verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. Jesus, when will these things be? The destruction of the temple. When will these things be? We'd really like to know. And Jesus answers, see that no one leads you astray doesn't give him a date, doesn't give him a time. He focuses on them, on their faithful endurance, on their standing. See that no one leads you astray. There would be many false Christs. There would be many false teachers. They would seek to lead many astray. There would be those that would be deceived, that would be led away from the truth. Jesus says, watch out. That's what what it is. See that no one leads you astray. That is, keep your eyes open. See, behold, look around. See that no one deceives you. Pay attention. And what is it that we should be looking to so that we're not led astray? What is it that we would want to look at and think about so that we're not led astray by something that's false? We want to pay attention to the genuine article, don't we? We want to pay attention to the, to the real thing. Not the phony, not the, not the fake, not the counterfeit. We want to look at what is true, what is real. See that no one leads you astray. Keep an eye out, pay attention, be on guard. By looking at what is true. That way you can recognize the counterfeit. That way you can recognize what is false. Paul writes to his young protege in the faith, his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, pay careful, keep a close watch, excuse me, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and, and your hearers. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And and I think that does well to, to summarize here what Jesus is first commanding his disciples. See that no one leads you astray. Well, how? Because you're spending time in God's word. You're spending time in the genuine article. You recognize what is true. You're spending time with Jesus in his word. And so when false teachers come up, you know, well, that's false because it contradicts what's here. That claim of of, of this person to be Christ, no, that's not the real Christ because that doesn't coincide with what we have here in Scripture. Keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching. That's what it is to see that no one leads you astray. It's not just looking out all the time thinking, oh, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher. No, it's spending time in what is right and what is true and being built up in our faith, in God's Word, and by the Holy Spirit so that we can recognize what is false. Verse 7, we get to the second imperative. Verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the second command, the second imperative that he gives them is do not be alarmed. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes. I know for me, I've heard of all kinds of things, read all sorts of stories in news headlines lately. And, and the news is, is really even fashioned in such a way that it's supposed to raise your blood pressure. You see a headline, and you want to click it because, oh, that looks devastating, or that looks really interesting. That looks like it's world-changing, and so so you want to look at that. You want to pick up that paper. You want to click on that link because, ooh, this is alarming. Raising your blood pressure. R- wars, rumors of wars. But Jesus says, do not be alarmed. That is, Don't be troubled. Don't be be filled with apprehension. But trust instead. Trust in our sovereign God. Amen, D-Hearts. I see it. Love it. Trust in our sovereign God. We, We may not know everything that God is working out in any specific situation. But knowing what we do know about him and knowing what we do know of his will is going to help us navigate even times that would, for many, be alarming. All right, do we still have the the paper and the markers handy? I know the D-Hearts have them. All right, got a thumbs up from Riker as well. What do we know about God? As as Jesus tells his disciples, do not be alarmed. And I, I think one of the keys to not being alarmed is to trust in our sovereign God. His works and his ways, his characteristics and his attributes, his promises, the things that he's done in the past, the things that he's doing in the present, the things that he's promised to do in the future, as we set our minds upon those things, it's going to help us navigate where we are here and now and not be alarmed. So, church, what are those things that for you, you would say, I know about God, I know this about God. And it's going to help me be able to navigate these difficult times. You can write that down on your piece of paper, and then you can, you can hold it up to the screen. Or uh, you can use the chat feature as well here in Zoom. God is good and sovereign, Jason DeHartz. He is eternal, cameras. Brit, uh, Bethany, he is faithful. Riker, he sent his only son for us. What great love. Yes, the D-Hearts, loving. Nathan Rice family, in control. Wait as he won't forsake me or us. He hears our prayers, Laura. Great. He is in control. This is not my home. That's right. He's preparing an eternal home for us. The Stazax, God is trustworthy. That is so true. The digital pen and paper, he is constant from the cameras. Savior from Riker. These things are all true, church. We should meditate upon these things. We should think about these things. We should think, this is, this is our God. This is what he has revealed to us about himself in Scripture. This is what he has shown himself to be, not only in the words of Scripture, but in his acts, in his works of creation, in in his work of redemption, in his work of salvation, and his promises that he's given to us. Church, if we take time to think and to meditate and consider what our God is like and what he has promised for, for us, for those that he has called, we don't need to be alarmed. We don't need to have our, our blood pressure raised by headlines or rumors or earthquakes or wars, even if they become a reality. We can trust God So we get to the third imperative. Oh, I missed one from Caleb and Megan, provider as well. Yes, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. So the third imperative we come to in verse nine, be on your guard. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now verses 9 through 11 really... Uh, have three imperatives packed in there together. We're going to take each, of one, each one of them in turn. This first imperative we saw right at the beginning of verse 9 be on your guard. Be on your guard. What is it that they were to be guarded about? Thinking of escape routes or Stockpiling munitions. Be on your guard. Is that what Jesus was telling them? No. Be on your guard. Guarding their minds. Guarding their hearts. Guarding their souls. So that when, when, not if, but when, by God's will, they were delivered over. If they were beaten. As they stood before governors and kings, that they would be ready to bear witness and ready to proclaim the gospel. Be on your guard, because these things are coming, Jesus tells them. Don't those verses read just much like the book of Acts? As we go through the book of Acts and we read about all of the, the trials and the counsels, The disciples standing before the Sanhedrin, all of the threats that were leveled against them, we're going to let you go, but you can no longer speak about Jesus, no longer teach in the name of Jesus. And what did the disciples do? They left, they praised God that they suffered as they did, and they prayed and they asked God to give them confidence by the Holy Spirit to continue to speak And then they went out and they continued to speak, to proclaim the gospel, to herald the good news of Jesus Christ. Be on your guard is about bearing witness. It's about proclaiming the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, you might remember Stephen the first martyr of the church. I want, to, I want to read for you that end of the account in, Max, in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, that is all of those Jews that heard what Stephen was saying, they were enraged as he was giving glory to God and preaching Jesus The hearers were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Imagine grinding their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He gave his life. He died. This is a man... That was on his guard. He went through trial. When the time came, he was ready because he had guarded his heart, his mind and his soul. So when opportunity was given, he was ready. I've got this message, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to proclaim this message. Even that, though that meant that he was hated. Even though that meant that he was beaten, he was stoned with stones, and he was killed. He bore witness to Christ. Be on your guard. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Guard your soul. So that when, by God's will, difficulty comes, persecution arrives, that you're ready to bear witness and to proclaim and herald the good news of Jesus Christ. And this carries right over into verse 10 as well. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. How would that happen? How would the gospel be proclaimed to all nations? As I said earlier, in large part, as a result of persecution, the church was really pretty content to stay in Jerusalem. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, told the the disciples, the apostles there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they said, eh, Jerusalem's pretty nice. But then as persecution came up, as persecution arose, then the church began to scatter, the believers went, Throughout all of the known world at that point in time. And everywhere they went, Philip to Samaria, to the Ethiopian eunuch, even Peter going and and proclaiming the gospel to the Roman centurion. Everywhere that they went now, they were preaching the gospel, even to the Gentiles. And God was giving grace and God was saving souls. Be on your guard. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. This is, in fact, what Paul writes in Colossians chapter one, verse six, even during his lifetime. This is what he had to say in Colossians 1 verse 6, "The gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing." Paul says, "At this point in my life, the gospel has gone throughout the whole world. It's bearing fruit. And it's increasing. He says later in that same chapter, in verse 23, that they are not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So, everywhere the gospel was going out, it was sending forth, it was being preached and proclaimed. Be on your guard, be prepared heart, mind, and soul, so that when opportunity comes, the gospel is preached and you bear witness. And then in verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, here's the next imperative, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And and really, do not be anxious needs a positive command to go along with it. Have you ever given someone that that counsel, that advice? Be anxious about nothing, and you stop there? But that's not what we have in in Scripture. Don't be anxious. No, there's a positive command. There's this positive imperative that follows along with it, and that's what Jesus does here. Something right to focus on, something right to engage in. With imperative number five, Jesus gives the positive side of that. Do not be anxious, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Say whatever is given you by the Holy Spirit. This is consistently what we read of in the book of Acts, that the disciples, that the apostles, that the believers, that the church in this time, they were so dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And we read over and over again throughout the book of Acts that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they spoke. So don't be anxious, because when we get anxious, that means that we think we're in control. This is something that I can do. This is something that I must perform. This is somehow within within my ability. And church, realize it's not within your ability. That's what causes anxiety. I need to fix this. I need to change this. If it's going to be, it's up to me. No. Rely upon the Holy Spirit. Upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak those words that the Holy Spirit gives you to speak in that hour, is what Jesus was telling his disciples. And by relying on the Holy Spirit, hear this, they filled the world with the gospel. Isn't that an awesome thought? It's truth, it's reality. By relying upon the Holy Spirit and speaking what He gave them to speak, the gospel went out through the world, the known world, all the nations at that time. Don't be anxious, be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And in times like this, church, that's where we find ourselves also. We need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We need to realize that there are certain things that we don't have control over. There are many things that we don't have control over. And I, I think this is a good lesson, a good time for us, where we realize more and more that, that certain things are outside of our control. Even things that we maybe thought we had control of before, we now realize, well, that's, that's out of my control I thought I had control over that, but all along, I really didn't. It wasn't under my control. And those are good lessons. We're stripped away of our own dependence, of our own reliance, in our own power. And we look to the powerful one, to God, the Holy Spirit. And we look to him, even for the words that we speak. Holy Spirit give me the words to speak that they would be your words. And then Jesus finishes this passage in verse 13 with a promise. Don't be anxious, speak whatever the Holy Spirit gives you to speak. Verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child The children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In trials and in persecutions, there are many things that we don't have control over but we can set our minds to endurance. We can set our minds to persevere. One thing that we do have control over is what is it that we'll set our minds upon? The one who endures to the end will be saved. The promise of salvation should help to serve and steel our minds so that we can continue to endure even in the midst of adversity. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And what a glorious salvation that is. That's not necessarily a salvation from difficulty in the temporal sense. Not saying you'll be saved from from getting sick. You'll be saved from financial trouble. You'll be saved from, we could fill in the blanks with all sorts of things. No, we're talking about salvation, eternal. Salvation, God bringing us to glory through the work of his son, Jesus. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the tyranny of Satan. We're saved that we're no longer subject to our own flesh, to to obey it as our master. We're saved to serve Jesus. And there will come a day when that salvation will be fully and ultimately realized. Realized when we're joined together with all the other saints not through screens but we're together with all the other saints in glory shoulder to shoulder all of us focused upon god on his throne bowing down in worship of him what a glorious day i so look forward to that the one who endures to the end will be saved amen wait us What a great promise. Now, Jesus isn't calling his disciples to sky watching. He's not calling his disciples to try to interpret the end times by the headlines that they read. No, he wanted them to be aware, yes, but mostly to be aware of their own conduct and to be aware of their faith, to be faithfully enduring all the way until the end. And he knew that's what's best for you, to focus on your soul, to care for your own soul, to guard your heart and your mind. Faithful endurance would give them the opportunity to bear witness that otherwise they would not have And it would open the door of salvation to others that otherwise would not hear. And Jesus wanted them to be prepared for that. Ultimately, it's faithful endurance that would bring God the most glory as he would carry out his will, as he would accomplish his purposes, as he would save his beloved, the elect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have revealed to us in Scripture. And even as the disciples had questions and they came to Jesus, they drew near to Jesus, I pray that for each and every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, we would learn to draw near to Jesus with our questions and that we would learn to trust and obey those answers that we are given. Even when those answers are maybe not what we expected, or what we hoped for. Even as the disciples ask the question of when will these things be, and Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, but the end is not yet. These are only but the beginning of birth pains. He didn't give them a date and a time. He didn't answer that question specifically, but he drew his attention and their attention upon their souls and upon their preparation for enduring difficult times that you would be glorified in them and through them. And may the same be true of us, Lord Jesus that we would endure difficulty, that we would know what is most essential, even in this strange time that we're living right now, as we can't meet together, as so many of those things that we're used to doing in our daily lives we cannot engage in, even as people around us are suffering, suffering from sickness, suffering from loss of work, Our economy is is struggling so. Lord, nations around the world are struggling in so many ways. Father, this time that we live in is a time that's unprecedented, but we trust in you as a good God, as a sovereign God, as a provider, as a loving God, as a Savior as one who is constant and faithful and as one who will fulfill the promises that you have made. Continue to draw us near to you, Lord God, in this time, that we would not be alarmed, that we would not be anxious, that we would be on guard, that we would be setting our hearts our minds upon you. Continue to guide and direct us each day. Lord, may we look to your guidance and your direction more and more each day, learning to walk in the Spirit, not depending upon our own strength. For it is you, Holy Spirit, that we need to give us the right words to speak, the right acts to perform, even the right thoughts to think. So guide and direct us to bring glory to our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.